All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bull and Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at Mo News. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bull and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you. And it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONEWS for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. It is Monday, September 19th. I'm Mosh Wanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. It is great to be back after a trip to recharge. I, uh, If you've been following me over on Instagram, I've been retracing the steps of some of my family back in Morocco. So you can check that out in my Instagram highlights. I appreciate everyone's patience and hope you enjoyed the interviews over the course of the last couple of weeks. But I am back, as promised, with your daily news fix on the podcast. So without further ado, let's get to all the stories we're tracking on this Monday. The world will say goodbye to Queen Elizabeth II today as the official funeral takes place in London. We'll have all the details, including which leaders got the invite and which ones didn't. We're following all the fallout from the move by the governors of Florida and Texas to continue to ship and bus migrants and asylum seekers north to places including the vice president's mansion and Martha's Vineyard. Ukraine is continuing to make surprising military progress in its counteroffensive against Russia. We'll get into the new controversy this weekend as to why attendees at a Trump rally in Ohio over the weekend saluted him by putting their right arms and index fingers in the air. I'll have the latest from Puerto Rico, which is getting pummeled by Hurricane Fiona. And we'll have some entertainment news, including why the longest running show in Broadway history is finally closing. I'll tell you why the Phantom of the Opera will soon be taking his final bow. Okay, let's start today with the Queen's funeral, which will take place over about 13 hours today. The state funeral starts this morning at about 5.44 a.m. Eastern time. It caps off 10 days of national mourning and is expected to be watched by hundreds of thousands of people packing the streets of London and hundreds of millions on television around the world. Ahead of his mother's funeral, King Charles III issued a statement Sunday evening thanking the people in Britain and across the world for the many messages of condolence. The king wrote, over the last 10 days, my wife and I have been so deeply touched. As we all prepare to say our last farewell, I wanted simply to take this opportunity to say thank you to all those countless people who have been such a support and comfort to my family and myself in this time of grief. The numbers for this funeral are pretty astounding. 2,000 dignitaries and guests will be in attendance at Westminster Abbey for the state funeral. They will range from King Charles III and his three siblings, Queen Elizabeth's other children, Andrew, Edward, and Anne, Queen Consort Camilla, the Queen's eight grandchildren, that includes William, 
Harry and their families, as well as hundreds of world leaders, including President Biden and leaders from around the world. Following the morning service at Westminster, the coffin will go on a procession through the streets of London as Big Ben will toll continuously. It will then head to Windsor Castle for more processions, a private service, and then she will eventually be laid to rest around 2.30 p.m. Eastern time today at Windsor Castle next to her late husband, Prince Philip. 22 miles, 36 kilometers of barriers have been erected in central London alone to control crowds and keep areas around the Houses of Parliament, Westminster Abbey, and Buckingham Palace secure. It's the biggest security operation in London history, local authorities say, with more than 10,000 police on duty along with military and other security personnel. So dozens of heads of state from around the world have been invited. There are a couple exceptions, though, for these ceremonies. The UK apparently only invited ambassador-level invites, not the heads of state for countries like Iran, Nicaragua, and North Korea. So no Kim Jong-un or Ayatollah at the uh, funeral today. And then completely off the invite list were Syria, Afghanistan, and Venezuela, as well as Russia, Belarus, and Myanmar. Uh, the UK does not have relations with Syria, Afghanistan, or Venezuela. There were no invites given to Russia and Belarus, which are engaged in the war in Ukraine. And Myanmar is where the military recently conducted a coup. The UK decided not to invite anybody from that country. President Biden got to the UK earlier this weekend, along with First Lady Jill Biden. They paid respects to Queen Elizabeth II, where she was lying in state over the weekend. The president also signed a condolence book on Sunday, telling media assembled that Queen Elizabeth II leaves a, quote, giant hole. He actually went on to compare the queen to his mother, joking fondly about meeting the queen for tea at Windsor Castle last year, where he said he kept eating everything she put in front of me. Biden went on to say that she was the same in person as her image, decent, honorable, and all about service. I'll bring you continuous coverage of the funeral all day on my Instagram feed at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I want to stick with President Biden here for a second. He made a number of headlines Sunday night in his first 60 Minutes interview as president. First, on COVID, Biden declared the pandemic over. He told 60 Minutes, quote, we still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everyone seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it. Second, Biden made a bit of news on China and Taiwan when asked by correspondent Scott Pelley, as to whether the U.S. forces would defend Taiwan if China invaded the island, Biden said, quote, yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. Asked to clarify if he meant that unlike in Ukraine, U.S. forces, men and women, boots on the ground, would actually defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion, Biden replied, yes. Now, as we've been reporting the past couple of months, the U.S. has always kept its Taiwan policy pretty ambiguous. It's all part of the one China policy where the U.S. tries to keep its relationship with China while also supporting Taiwanese democracy. A White House official for their part told media after the interview that this is no official change in U.S. policy, but it was a pretty unambiguous uh, statement of support by President Biden for Taiwan in the case that China might invade in future years. Finally, one more bit of news. Biden was also asked by correspondent Scott Pelley if he is running in 2024. This is what the president had to say about running for re-election. And it's much too early to make that kind of decision. I'm a great respecter of fate. And so what I'm doing is I'm doing my job. I'm going to do that job. And within the time frame that makes sense after this next election cycle here, going into next year, make a judgment of what to do. You say that it's much too early to make that decision. I take it the decision has not been made in your own head. Look, my intention, as I said to begin with, is that I would run again. But it's just an intention. But is it a firm decision? 
that I run again, that remains to be seen. A reminder that Biden and his advisors have repeatedly said that he does intend to run for president in 2024. He would be, by the way, 81 years old, the oldest president. He already is the oldest president in American history. He would be 81 at the beginning of his second term. They have refrained, though, from definitively saying if Biden will seek re-election, something Biden says is due in part to campaign finance laws. If he says officially he's running for re-election, that officially would require him to disclose donors, cap his fundraising, etc. So he's using that as his excuse right now to effectively delay an official announcement that he's running for president. So we're going to keep watching that story, of course, over the course of the next year. Now to a story we're watching down out of Puerto Rico. Hurricane Fiona is intensifying and bringing heavy rains, high winds, and power outages to the island of Puerto Rico. As of Sunday night, power had been knocked out to the entire island. Now keep in mind, Puerto Rico has just about one and a half million residents. The entire island is under a flash flood warning. The storm is dumping more than two feet of rain, causing catastrophic flooding according to the National Hurricane Center. Hurricane force winds took out the island's fragile power grid. Remember, Hurricane Maria devastated the island just about five years ago. They've been rebuilding the grid, but it's still pretty fragile and is prone to power outages. Fiona made landfall on the island's southeastern coast just after 3 p.m. local time and had maximum sustained winds of 85 miles per hour. Gusts were going past 100 miles per hour. Fiona is a Category 1 hurricane and is expected to remain so through the landfall in Puerto Rico before it moves north later on Monday. But before it goes, the storm will bring torrential rains to the island. Widespread areas will see 12 to 18 inches, some even more than that. Higher amounts will fall in some locations in higher elevations. They could see up to 30 inches in a short period of time. We're also watching the escalating controversy in regards to immigration policy in this country. Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is doubling down on his decision to fly migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard last week. You might have been following this story last week. Uh, 50 migrants, uh, they were believed to be asylum seekers from Venezuela, were flown to the island of Martha's Vineyard. This is a small vacation island off the coast of Massachusetts where a number of uh, notable famous people have homes, including a number of liberals, including former President Obama. Republican governors like DeSantis in Florida, Abbott in uh, Texas, as well as the governor of Arizona, are complaining about a lack of support from the federal government in regards to securing the border. And so they're saying basically, hey, Democrats, you should see what we're dealing with. And so they are flying and busing thousands of these migrants to places like California, Chicago, D.C., New York, and of course, resort towns like Martha's Vineyard. Texas in particular has made a point of dropping multiple busloads of families, including some with babies, some infants, outside Vice President Kamala Harris's home in Washington over the weekend. Harris uh, was designated by President Biden to deal with border issues. There's a feeling among many red state governors that Harris is not taking that job seriously. So they are literally, in the case of Texas, dropping migrants off at her home. So DeSantis out of Florida has allocated, he has about $12 million from the Florida legislature to facilitate the transport of unauthorized aliens out of Florida, according to their policies. DeSantis has described these flights as voluntary. He says they're given a good ride. It's a humane thing to do to fly these migrants to places like Martha's Vineyard. But Democrats have accused DeSantis of effectively using these migrants as pawns, using them to help him get reelected in November, continue to build his political profile. They're saying he's effectively human trafficking here. And there are questions as to the legality of this policy of flying and busing migrants across the country. Lawyers representing several dozen of the migrants recently flown to Martha's Vineyard have asked the Massachusetts Attorney General 
and the federal government over the weekend to open criminal investigations into what they described as a political stunt. The lawyer said their clients were induced to board airplanes and cross state lines under false pretenses, including promises of working opportunities, schooling for their kids, and immigration assistance, all things that they say that people working for DeSantis promised these migrants. The migrants then were flown to places like Martha's Vineyard. Some apparently said that they were told they were being sent to Boston, but then ended up landing in Martha's Vineyard, where they don't have the facilities to house, clothe, or feed these migrants. Within about 48 hours, uh, the group was taken to a military facility in Cape Cod, which is just north of Martha's Vineyard, still in Massachusetts. That's where authorities say they have more equipment to deal with sheltering and feeding uh, the people who came across the border. So you have these governors from red states who are complaining about a lack of support, flying them to blue states, blue states saying there's no coordination here, you are treating them like cattle effectively. And so both sides are unhappy. This controversy seems to be escalating. I am following coverage out of Texas, uh, places like El Paso, border towns, where they're seeing more than a thousand new migrants a day, saying they don't have the facilities down on the border to deal with this influx of migrants. We could see as many as 2 million uh, migrants when the final numbers are tallied up at the end of this month for the uh, fiscal year. And so places like El Paso are saying, we don't have the facilities for these migrants either. We need to be busing them other places. There's a limited U.S. ability to send people back to Mexico. Keep in mind, by the way, most of these migrants don't come from Mexico. They come from Central America, South America. I'll get into that in a moment. And so the U.S. has limited ability to return these folks to their original countries. And so effectively you have a catch and release policy going on. The US is catching these folks on the border, giving them uh, notice to appear in court at some point and then releasing them throughout the country. Many of them end up on the border, lack of facilities down there as we're saying. And so these states are taking it into their own hands to say, hey, Northern states, some of you are sanctuary states that say you're open to migrants. How about you help us out here? Unfortunately for these migrants, many of them asylum seekers who have no place to return in their home countries, they're being caught in the middle here. Um, not sure what to do, but just trying to listen to the uh, local authorities and follow their guidance. But let's talk for a second on why we're seeing such a surge this year. I had mentioned we might see up to 2 million people caught on the border this year. One major issue, and I'll just talk about one country in particular right now, Venezuela, which has not been talked about as much, but is up there with Ukraine as one of the countries with the biggest refugee crisis in the world. Nearly 7 million Venezuelans have fled their country since it has fallen into a protracted political crisis about eight years ago, and humanitarian organizations warn that that number is expected to rise further in the coming months. Keep in mind, that is about the same number, 6 to 7 million, that we've seen in terms of number of Ukrainians who've become refugees from their country this year. An estimated 1,700 Venezuelans per day are now fleeing the country. More than three quarters of Venezuelans are living on less than $1.90 a day. That is the level by which the world determines extreme poverty. With the collapse of the government and the economy in Venezuela over the course of the recent years, neighboring Colombia has taken on two and a half million refugees. Peru's taken on more than a million. And for the first 10 months of fiscal year 2022, that'll take us through this fall, the U.S. estimates it has encountered 130,000 Venezuelan citizens on the border this year. That is nearly triple the 50,000 Venezuelans the U.S. encountered last year. The U.S. does not have a relationship with Maduro. He's the leader of Venezuela. Uh, they believe that he was elected in a, a corrupt election. So there's a limited ability and reluctance, frankly, to send any Venezuelans back to Venezuela. The U.S. has instituted a temporary policy of letting Venezuelans stay here 
for now. Keep in mind, by the way, the groups sent to Vice President Harris's home in D.C. and uh, Martha's Vineyard were both groups of asylum seekers from Venezuela. All right, we're less than two months away from midterm elections and everyone is out there campaigning, including former President Trump, who has a number of candidates he's endorsed. He was in Ohio at a rally over the weekend. That comes as we got new numbers out over the weekend. This is the final numbers from the Republican primaries in all the states. The former President Trump, in his slate of candidates, they went 21 and 5, 21 wins of 5 losses in Republican primaries over the course of the spring and summer. That shows how overwhelmingly popular he remains, and we will see how those candidates do in the fall in general elections. But for primary purposes, within Republican primary politics, the president did overwhelmingly well. We will see some competitive races in the general election, though. We'll see how his candidates do against Democrats. In the meantime, Trump is out there campaigning for his candidates. He was at a rally in Ohio over the weekend, which has a key Senate race, as well as a number of House races. Now, what's notable about this rally over the weekend is less about what the former president said. He pretty much stuck to script. He spoke dramatically about what he claims is at stake this election. But it was the music playing under him and how the crowd saluted him that is drawing some attention. First, let me have you take a listen to this clip. Try to pay attention to the music. It was hardworking patriots like you who built this country. And it is hardworking patriots like you who are going to save our country. We will stand up to the radical left lunatics and rhinos, and we will fight for America like no one has ever fought before. So what's notable here is the music appears to be from a QAnon conspiracy soundtrack. Many theorists, apparently the theorists also have music that they turn to. They see the playing of this music as a sign that the former president is fully embracing their theory. Remember that QAnon has a whole scope of theories as to what's happening here. At the core of QAnon's theory is that Democrats are Satan-worshipping pedophile supporters and Trump is there to eliminate them. And so they're constantly looking for clues and signs that the former president is endorsing uh, their ideas. He has flirted with them in the past, generally speaking, but he's been much more overt of late, including posting on his social media page an image of himself put out by a QAnon supporter. He retruthed it on his Truth Social social media page. It's a photo of him wearing a QAnon pin. But back to the music for a second. The Trump campaign says that that song you heard in the backdrop where he spoke very dramatically under this music is not officially a QAnon song. It just happens to sound exactly like it. Either way, QAnon forums, conspiracy theorists over the weekend are blowing up with excitement. They're saying they're taking all of this as a sign that he is overtly supporting their cause now. And I mentioned there was a thing that uh, people are concerned about beyond the music, and that was that hundreds of people in the crowd, I'll link to a photo here in the show notes, uh, were holding up their right arms to the sky, straight up to the sky, pointing their index fingers up, a one-finger salute. Now, there are a number of reporters and uh, analysts that have been analyzing all things QAnon for years. They're not quite sure what this uh, one-finger salute symbolizes with people holding their arms straight up in the air, whether this is America first, a QAnon catchphrase about where one goes, so there's a one symbology there, or frankly, Christian nationalism. You might see this at the end of uh, various church events. Either way, it has freaked a number of you out. I got a number of messages from people on Instagram asking what this is all about. We're still waiting on the Trump campaign to explain exactly why people were holding their right arm straight up in the air, um, holding up an index finger, and whether this is a, going to be something that stays. Rest assured, we will stay on top of that. 
All right, I want to head to a couple international headlines that I'm watching as we begin the week. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has promised his country that there will be no let up in his counteroffensive that has reclaimed a number of towns and cities from Russian troops over the course of the last couple of weeks. In a speech over the weekend, Zelensky ran through a list of towns that Ukraine has taken back in its lightning push across the Northeast. Ukraine has taken back more than 2,400 square miles, an area the size of Delaware, in September alone. Now, Russia still continues to occupy a lot of the east and south in the country, but Ukraine has shown an incredible uh, push over the course of these last few weeks. Russians are responding by shelling towns and cities over the weekend. A British defense source warns that the Russians are likely to increase attacks on civilian targets as it continues to suffer battlefield defeats. As Ukraine makes this push, they are calling on the U.S. and West to give them even more Western tanks, more firepower to help them with this offensive. So far, the West remains a bit reluctant. They are sticking to smaller arms um, and that sort of aid, uh, missiles, etc. Western defense officials tell uh, the Washington Post that they're going to continue to monitor what Ukraine is up to before they go ahead and start sending them things as large as tanks. Ukraine continues to insist things are urgent. They found more than 450 bodies in one town they just took back from the Russians. They're calling for an investigation at international tribunal. This is supported by folks in the EU. And in so doing, are saying they need more military equipment ASAP to prevent future incidents in these areas still controlled by Russia. Ukraine will be one of the major topics discussed this week at the UN General Assembly, that is the annual summit where all the world leaders come together in person in New York. After two years of virtual and hybrid summits, the leaders will actually be flying to New York. Uh, New Yorkers know this as a time for major traffic jams to avoid most of Eastern Manhattan. It is the annual session that has taken place since the beginning of the UN, where every world leader is set to speak and talk about their agenda, their priorities for the world in the coming year. The official debate is set to begin on Tuesday. It is really less of a debate and more each leader goes up to the podium and speaks. They each have a 15-minute limit that they have to keep to. Each leader essentially lays out uh, their agenda and how they're contributing positively to what's happening in the world. Up first will be Brazil. By the way, Brazil speaks first every September. Early on, this goes back decades, Brazil volunteered when no other country wanted to speak first. So now it is enshrined that Brazil speaks first. Typically, then the U.S. speaks second on Tuesday. Uh, that is tradition because the U.S. is the host country for the U.N., which is located in New York. But because Biden will be at Queen Elizabeth's funeral on Monday, his speech will actually go on Wednesday this year. A couple other notable things. Russia is sending its foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, not Vladimir Putin. Uh, there was a hang-up in regards to his U.S. entry visa, though officially the U.N. has said for years, while the U.N. is located in New York, the U.S. cannot exert its policy on various world leaders. So Lavrov will be coming. But Vladimir Zelensky will be staying in Ukraine. He's been given special permission to give his speech remotely this year from Kyiv. As I mentioned, Ukraine will be one of the main issues discussed. You can also expect that things like inflation, economic instability, terrorism, ideological extremism, and of course, climate change will be hot topics for the UN this week. All right, a couple entertainment headlines before we go. Variety Magazine is reporting that Woody Allen has officially announced his retirement from filmmaking. He's currently in Europe working on his 50th film, 5-0. Woody Allen apparently spoke to a Spanish newspaper and said that he intends to retire from making movies and will dedicate the rest of his retirement now to just writing. What is now his final film is currently being shot in Paris and will be shot entirely in French over the course of the next few weeks. 
Allen has been shooting a lot in Europe in recent years as the abuse allegations have effectively blacklisted him in the U.S. Remember that he is accused by his former partner Mia Farrow of molesting their child Dylan Farrow when she was 7 years old. Allen, who is now 86 years old, has always denied those allegations and continued to work, though in recent years there's been a documentary on HBO and in other places where more and more people are hearing the story of Dylan Farrow, his daughter, and Mia Farrow, and saying they don't want to be doing business with Woody Allen anymore. Amazon Studios shelved his previous film, A Rainy Day in New York. He then sued them for a whole bunch of money to settle that out of court. Um, but he has dealt with a whole bunch of issues in regards to American production companies, as well as American publishing companies in recent years who no longer want to be associated with him. Allen is set to turn 87 later this year. During his career, he has won four Academy Awards, including one for Best Director for the famous film back in the late 70s, Annie Hall. Staying with entertainment for a second, Phantom of the Opera, Broadway's longest running show and an icon of New York City theater, will officially close in early 2023. The show announced over the weekend that it'll commemorate its 35th anniversary in January and then stage its final performance on Broadway on February 18th. On Broadway alone, the musical has played more than 13,500 performances to nearly 20 million people at the Majestic Theater over on West 44th Street. If all goes according to plan, by the time it closes early next year, it will have done nearly 14,000 performances. So why is it closing? Producers tell the New York Times there's a number of factors here. One is ticket sales. Remember, it has been on Broadway for 35 years. So New Yorkers have seen it, most Americans have seen it, and so they rely on international tourism, which of course has not happened for the past few years with COVID closures. And even after COVID, we have seen a limited amount of foreign tourists coming to New York. In addition to that, they claim that they're having major issues in regards to inflation and production costs. Keep in mind that while many Broadway shows are pretty simple in terms of sets, Phantom of the Opera is a very complex set, multiple sets, 27 musicians, etc. And so what they're saying is between inflation costs and a lack of international tourists, they have not been able to keep up ticket sales to be able to pay for the show. And so they've made a decision to finally close it after all these years. Looking at the numbers here, you have seen a number of famous Broadway shows close, classic Broadway shows close over the last few years, including Cats. After Phantom closes, the longest running Broadway shows that will still be going will be Chicago and Lion King. Chicago recently celebrated 25 years on Broadway. Lion King is about to celebrate the same amount of time. And a bit of sports news before we go. There is a new WNBA champion, the Las Vegas Aces. They clinched their first WNBA title with a 78-71 win over the Connecticut Sun in Game 4 of the Finals on Sunday. It's the first major pro sports title for the city of Las Vegas. Yay, Vegas. Aces owner Mark Davis. You might know the Davis family. They own the NFL Las Vegas Raiders, the other Vegas team. He was not actually with his football team on Sunday. He was with the Aces in Connecticut as they won their WNBA trophy. If you aren't familiar with the Aces, it might be because they are actually new arrivals to Vegas. They just got there in 2018. The team started back originally when the NWNBA launched as the Utah Stars. Then they spent more than a decade in San Antonio before finally coming to Vegas in 2018. Congrats to the Aces, uh, everyone associated with the team, as well as the city of Vegas. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. It is great to be back with all of you day to day to track all the developments. I appreciate everyone's patience as I took a couple of weeks off there in early September, but I am back. Uh, I'd love your feedback on how I'm doing, what you'd like to see us cover, those interviews I had recently, other interviews you'd like to see. You can email me over at podcast at mo.news. A reminder to subscribe to my newsletter, the Mo News newsletter, over at monews.bulletin.com. And if you aren't already following me, follow me over on Instagram at 
at at Moshe, at M-O-S-H-E-H. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show on whatever app you're listening to us on at this moment. It'll ensure that you do not miss a single episode. Also, please leave us a review. Every review matters and helps us continue to grow the show and move up in the App Store rankings on various podcast apps. Again, whatever app you're listening to us on, leave us a review. I will see everyone back here tomorrow.